I was in India two weeks ago in Cambodia last week speaking to a bunch of pastors. And uh, yeah, the flight's about 30 hours back. And I stayed awake the whole time so for the last two hours from Dallas-Fort Worth last night. Just couldn't stay awake anymore. And it crashed. And so I'm okay right now. It, it could change, though. By about 2 o'clock today, a couple of years ago, I made the comment here in church that, uh, um, bear with me, I, I may fall asleep in the middle of my sermon. And one of the elders yelled out, that's okay, we do that every Sunday. So, <laughs> <laughs> so feel free to catch up on your sleep. Uh, yes, the flight was safe. It went really well. Uh, my very first flight got delayed, so I missed my connecting flight, so they rerouted me. And those of you that know me, I just start laughing when that happens because I don't know what the Lord has in store, but he's got something in store. So sure enough, on the next flight, it was 14 and a half hours, and um, so the, everybody uh, was grumbling quite a bit because they were frustrated. Uh, but I was laughing and joking, and so I was going to uh, Doha, Qatar. And so in the middle of the night when everybody went to sleep, the flight attendant came and knelt down, and we started talking, and she was just was very grateful because I was so kind to her. Um, so she asked me what I did, and I told her, like a Christian? And I said, yeah. I said, do you have a faith background? She was Buddhist. And I go, oh, that's why the Lord rerouted my life again. So we had a chance for quite a while to talk about the Lord and talk about Jesus and Christianity, and she knew nothing about it. It's really interesting. She knew nothing about Christianity. So every time something like this happens, I know God has something in store for me related to the kingdom. Yes, I am wearing sandals. I do this every year. You don't have to remind me. I know that it's getting cold out there, but this is a protest, okay? I wear them until it snows. So, (laughs) okay, so we're going to spend some time in Exodus, and you're probably wondering why Exodus. Exodus, uh, two and a half years ago, we went through Leviticus, and we built the idea that Leviticus is a blueprint for the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the church, it's a blueprint for the, what happens in the New Testament. So Leviticus 1 through 7 is dealing with the sacrifices. And, um, and we offer up spiritual sacrifices according to 1 Peter 2 and Hebrews 13. And then in Leviticus 8, 9, and 10, it talks about the priesthood. And that was the original covenant is that we would become a kingdom of priests. So this is where we learn about what it means to be a priest and to whom are we a priest. We're a priest to all of our friends and neighbors and all the nations out there. In Cambodia, um, my friend Todd Tillipaw and his wife Carla Tillipaw, Carla started a ministry there about 12, 14 years ago. She, um, they were living in Okinawa at the time, and they flew over to Thailand and Cambodia. And she started going into the villages. Uh, they didn't even have roads. You had to put on boots and a hike. So these little villages are just all by themselves, just self-contained and they, um, and she started sharing Christ, and they started a little school, and started a church, and uh, now the church has really grown, they're planting churches, so Todd uh, joined the ministry about four years ago, and talked to me about coming over and helping equip these young pastors, he was working about with about 15 of them, so I flew over there last year, and um, they decided to do a pastor's conference to give me a chance to talk to them about things, And um, he expected 15 or 20. We had 75 show up. So this year, we expected, he expected 120, 130. We had 175 show up. I don't know what's going to happen next year. That's his issue. So, but it was full of a lot of people, a lot of pastors, men and women that uh, know very little, 
just they know very little. You may remember if you saw the movie The Killing Fields back what, 20 years ago, the Khmer Rouge when they took over, they began that ethnic cleansing and they uh, killed two two and a half million people, mostly the educated and the older people in the elite. So all these pastors are very young, very little training, uh, very little education, and so this is new for them to learn um, about the Bible, and it was really great. They didn't know the they didn't know the Bible, so we went through it. So we um, that's part of being a priest is either a priest to your next door neighbor a priest to your co-workers, your friends, a priest to the nations around us, different nations, that sort of thing. And so that was the original covenant. So why Exodus? Well, Exodus is a prequel to Leviticus. Exodus is dealing with a very different issue, but one that we need to talk about. It, um, it's related to the concept of freedom. Now, you know that because of the Exodus story. He brings, about, brings Israel out of slavery to Egypt and uh, gives them freedom. But it's a little bit deeper than that because there's only 15 of the 40 chapters are do- deno- devoted to coming out of Egypt. So there's something much deeper going on in this concept of freedom that we need to wrestle with. And uh, it really encompasses the entire Bible, this concept of freedom. The very word Exodus means the way out. It's a Greek term. The way out of what? Um, And what we're going to learn is that all of us struggle deeply with brokenness and sin. All of us. Theologians call it depravity, total depravity. And that comes from Romans chapter 1. When you look at God gave us what we wanted. He let us have it. He gave us the freedom to choose. That's the essence of human dignity is freedom. And so Romans 1 goes through the explanation of what happened with starting with Adam and Eve and then every human. And so we go through this, this process where we eventually, the final step is God lets us go. You want it? You get it. It's called total depravity. What that means is every part of you, without exception, is broken. The problem is you don't know it. That's truly the problem in the Bible. You don't know it. We don't know what it's like not to have a sin nature. We don't know what it's like not to be depraved. And we don't know what it's like to live in a culture that's defined primarily by corruption, greed, evil, that kind of stuff. Paul says in Romans 3, there's not one person who is righteous, not even one. And then he says in the same paragraph, there's no one who does good, not even one. And so we are deceived into thinking that we're pretty good people. The truth is we're not. So I asked, I've asked many times over the years here, how many of you have gotten angry in the last month? And <clears throat> almost every hand goes up. Well, according to Jesus, he just admitted to be being a congregation of murderers. Unless Jesus is telling us a joke. I don't think he is. And then Paul says murderers will not inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians. And I don't think that's a joke. That's the seriousness with which we face life, is that there's not a single one of you that has a chance, not one. That's why the cross is so important. Without the cross, you get nothing. But with the cross, you get the Lord. And so that's why the cross is a critical part of our theology. And so Exodus is the beginning of the journey in several ways, but one of the big parts of that journey is God wants us to be free from slavery to sin. 
and it expresses itself in our lives in every way you can imagine. Money, bank accounts, prestige, hedonism, happiness in marriage, all of those things. And if you start looking at them, they all enslave us. They do. They do. That's why the divorce rate is so high. That's why, that's why our country more and more is turning to greed. You know, I think we gave $97 billion to Haiti last year as a country, and the poor people never saw a penny of it. They don't even know we gave them money because I was there three weeks ago, and they have people dying of starvation every week and disease. They've never seen a penny of it. It went to somebody's pocket, but not their pocket. And so our country become, is becoming more and more greedy is what's happening. And that's the way of nations. That's the way they go. And so we as the church have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do within our own community to turn that around. But God knew that we were enslaved to our own sinfulness. And so freedom, the way out of that enslavement, what does that look like? And Exodus starts that journey. <clears throat> when, the, when you get to the New Testament, and I explained it this way to the pastors in Cambodia, when the New Testament authors wrote, they didn't have a New Testament. <laughs> they were the ones that wrote it. And so their only Bible was the Old Testament. So they were making sense of all that God was doing strictly from the Old Testament, but they had seen the life of Christ. And so they were reinterpreting some of these great prophecies in light of the cross, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. And they began to make sense of what the Old Testament was really pointing toward. So the New Testament becomes an interpretation of the Old Testament. We call it a Christological interpretation. It's using Christ as the model or the filter now to interpret the Old Testament. That was their only Bible. So when they began to write their stories, all of their letters and epistles are all interpretations of what the Old Testament was about. That's why they quote the Old Testament relentlessly all through there and allude to it and refer to it. So in the Old Testament, we have... Um, we have several themes that begin to grow in the Old Testament, which begin to blossom in the New Testament, okay? Now, we've got to be careful here because for a long time in our own country, it was, we, we taught that God was a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of grace in the New Testament. Well, that just makes them bipolar, okay? And God is not that way. And so we looked at earlier this year, we looked at the minor prophets. And so a discriminating reading of the Old Testament, a careful reading reveals some things, yeah, when you read the prophets, there's a lot of prophecies of judgment. But you know why? Most of the nation never did believe. Even David knew that. If you read the Psalms carefully, he knew that his people didn't believe. God is blessing them because of his faithfulness. Even Elijah said, I'm the only one who hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. And God says, that's not true. Let's put you by the brook. Let you sleep for a little while. I'll feed you. There's actually 7,000. You just don't know who they are. 7,000 out of a nation. When Jesus says narrow is the road and few there are that find it, that's not, that's not metaphor. That's not simile. That is, it's not exaggeration. That's reality. Okay? That's reality. And so the nation in the Old Testament did not believe. So the bulk of the prophecies do contain a lot of judgment. But it's not judgment against the faithful. It's against the nation who was rebellious and would not follow the Lord. And so in the middle of each of those prophets, there's a little bit of uh, prophecy given to the faithful at that time. The example I've used is, is Lamentations. Terrible book. If you read it, oh my gosh. It's the end of the, uh, Jerusalem and the temple. 
Okay, God's gone hundreds of years trying to get them to turn back, and they're in the final hours. They're now eating dead people because that's all the food they have. They're surrounded by Babylon. They're tearing down the walls, and it's within hours now of the final destruction of Jerusalem. And right in the middle of that, he says, the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. You see, that's written to Jeremiah and that little tiny group of faithful. So all the way through the Bible, when you read it, even in the midst of the Old Testament, where it looks like it's really, God is so judgmental and angry, he is not toward the faithful. Never toward the faithful. Never. But he is toward the rebellious who hurt the faithful. And he doesn't, he doesn't waste too many words telling them that. Same with Jesus. Look at how kind he was to the woman caught in adultery. To Zacchaeus. Think about that. The, the, the sinner, we think she was a prostitute, we can't prove it, who was washing his feet with her hair. The woman that's bent over, walks right through the crowd of men he's teaching, and he lays his hands on her to heal her, shows her grace. You see, Jesus was very gentle with sinners, but he was ruthless with the Pharisees. It's a good word for those of you that are in leadership. Be very careful. And so in the Old Testament, we have this emphasis on this, this justice, if you will. Uh, it comes out very clearly when you move into the New Testament. What you see now is an emphasis on grace. God is always a God of grace and always a, gr- a God of justice, which shows itself as wrath um, to the rebellious. But the New Testament is focused on the faithful. The Old Testament is focused on a rebellious nation. So you get to see the two sides of God that make up who God is. And the Old Testament is focused on his majesty, what we call transcendence, his farness, his away from us. But God had to demonstrate that he was the all-powerful God. He created everything, and he has rules to live by. Okay, He has a line in the sand. And when the Israelites crossed that line, they paid a terrible price. Okay, Moses paid a terrible price when he struck the rock instead of spoke to it. God said, because you did that, because I told you to speak to the rock, you blaspheme me in front of all the people as a leader, I'm going to kill you. What he said was, you're not going into the promised land. So 40 years later, he took him up top of Mount Nebo and took his life. So God does have a line in the sand. There's no question about it. But the emphasis there is on his majesty, his transcendence. If you've ever been inside of a cathedral in any of the countries of the world, we have cathedrals. There, it's really large and big, and it And they tried to capture that a little bit here, the vastness of God. When you move into the New Testament, you begin to see what we call his imminence, his nearness. What God, and Exodus, by the way, introduces these topics. That's why I'm bringing them up. When Jesus came to live with us, we learned God wants to be with us. But that goes all the way back to Exodus. He wants to live with us. He wants to be in our midst. And that's the final chapter in our story is God is with us, Jesus. At the end of Revelation, he's with us for all of eternity. We can look in his eyes. We can touch him. We can laugh with him. We can ask him all the questions we haven't gotten to answer. Okay? And that'll be fun. And Exodus talks about that. So the nearness, the eminence of God comes to the forefront in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we have the concept of holiness. That's what Leviticus was all about. Holiness. Only God is holy. No one else is holy. And so it's a very interesting thing that God requires 100% holiness to enter into his presence. That's the message of Leviticus. You can't get in without it. So if none of us are holy and none of us have done good and none of us are righteous, 
How on earth can we ever be holy? And that's the fundamental question that the Old Testament is asking. So the Old Testament gives us the questions that the New Testament is answering. And one of them is how can a holy person spend, or first of all, enter into God's presence, much less spend an eternity? Well, we find out the answer as a gift for those that, that turn toward the Lord. He grants you holiness. Hebrews 10.10, by the will of God, <clears throat> based on the work of Christ, he has declared you holy for eternity. That's a gift. You see, that was the original covenant. I will make you into a holy nation. By the way, we call it the old covenant. It's the same in the New Testament. It's the same covenant. Exodus 19, 1 Peter 2, same covenant. We are a holy nation, faithful. I'm not talking about the United States. I'm talking about the faithful. We are a kingdom of priests. That's our job. So when Jesus brings a new covenant, I mean the new uh, commandment, into the world. You can imagine this, the last night. He's about to be executed, Jesus. And he says, a new commandment I give you. Remember he washes Peter's feet? Washes the disciples' feet? And he says, I know you don't understand what I'm doing right now, but you will when, a new, when the Holy Spirit comes. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Okay, that's not new. That's, like, that's Leviticus 19. What makes it new is what he says about it. That you love one another as I have loved you. So picture just for a moment the conversation with Matthew, a tax collector. Matthew, what were you doing when I found you? Stealing from people, Lord. Right. Judas, I loved you to the very end. What were you doing when I found you? Peter, a betrayer. What were you doing? Can you imagine that? when he's talking to them and they're reflecting on their own sinfulness, what that looks like. So when he says, that's a new command that you love one another as I have loved you, that means you go after your most violent enemy. As Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against Satan. And he has deceived a whole lot of people. A whole lot of people. It's interesting, we had a meeting with the uh, superintendent of the school system here a uh, very great meeting. I really enjoyed it. And, uh, and he had listened to some of the sermons. And so he was familiar with what I have been saying to you. And he said, I heard you say that the school board is not our enemy. And he said, thank you for saying that. So, but the fact that you have to say it says something is going on. Educate me. Talk to me. What's happening? We had a great conversation. Okay. I don't think he has a faith background. I didn't ask. I'm just assuming that. And so we talked about it, and I gave him an explanation as, uh, as Christians, some of the things that we believe that are going on that we're not happy about. And it was a good conversation. And so all of this stuff that I'm talking about here, it, it begins to surface in Exodus. Exodus is the prequel to Leviticus. So if Leviticus is a blueprint for holiness... Exodus is a blueprint for freedom. And we have to look at how God involved himself in our world, his creation, to break us of these patterns of enslavement. And what you're going to find is this is your story. That's what you're going to find. Exodus is brilliant. It's, uh, <clears throat> it captures the story 
and, um, of God in narrative form, in story form, not in proposition form. It tells a story. And when you look at Jesus, that's how Jesus did it. When he was confronted because his disciples were eating grain on the Sabbath, he didn't go back and say, well, Leviticus 19 actually means this. That's not what he said. He said, well, have you read? Haven't you heard? Or David, when he was hungry, went and ate the holy bread in violation of the law, and God blessed him. He said, in fact, your very own priest, now he's hitting close to home, your very own priest desecrate the Sabbath, Matthew 12, by working in the temple. Because the basic rule of the Sabbath was you didn't work. Well, if the priest didn't work in the temple, the people couldn't fulfill the function of Sabbath to come worship God. And I shared that with all these pastors in uh, Cambodia. Pastors all around the world violate the Sabbath concept by working today. Our staff works very hard today. You just don't see it. They're the ones that make all this happen. Why do we do it? For your benefit. And so Jesus told a story of, to help them see that the law was given to bless us. To bless us. What did Jesus say? I didn't come to condemn. I didn't come to judge. I came to give life. Therefore, he could say, do not judge, do not condemn. Somehow the American church over the last few decades has become this kind of church. And that's why we're chasing people away right here. Is because of this. That's not who Jesus was. Jesus is this kind of Messiah. <coughs> Everyone is welcome. <coughs> Excuse me. And so, because he wanted them to come to know him and to draw them near. And the answer is, what happened with Matthew? What happened with Zacchaeus? What happened to the woman caught in adultery? What happened to the Samaritan woman? What happened to the, the prostitute washing his feet? He drew them close. What happened to Judas? He drew him close. But Judas still had the freedom to decide no. And Judas walked away. It wasn't because of Jesus. He loved him to the end. Called him friend just before he betrayed him. And uh, he still had the freedom. And this all begins in this wonderful book. Okay, so the physical bondage piece, which you're all familiar with, leading them out of slavery in Egypt, is only 15 of the 40 chapters. So obviously something deeper is going on with this nation that God is beginning to wrestle with. And it relates very much to us, that deeper concept of enslavement. And what does that mean? You see, he wants us, he wants us to know him. That's the whole thing, is he wants us to know him. The key themes all through Exodus are covenant, which I've talked about, and holiness, which we talked about a lot two years ago. Holiness. That's living. All holiness means is living the way God created you to live. If you doubt that sin enslaves you, talk to a drug addict. Talk to an alcoholic. Talk to someone addicted to sexual conquest talk to those who are greedy and want more talk to those who have positions of uh, influence high up celebrity status don't know how to quit you see that's the problem we're not wired for that we're wired for something very different and exodus is going to crack open that that nut and let us see what god desired all along that's the answer is to, is to break that hold on us and give us true freedom. Every one of us struggles with it. 
every one of us. So God wants to know us, and there's no clearer place than that. I'm just going to read to you this one passage in Exodus 3. In Exodus 3, God is persuading Moses to uh, be his representative. Moses wasn't so keen on the idea, I get it. Um, If God had said to you, I want you to go to the President of the United States and confront him for his sin, how would you feel? Okay. How about uh, Jonah? I want you to go to Nineveh, home of the Assyrians, and confront them. Would you want to do that? No. Well, Moses didn't want to either. But God's pretty persuasive when he wants to be. And so in this wonderful chapter, in chapter 3, he's breaking the traditional mold of what the gods were all about. You see, the gods never gave their name. Humans named them. Molech, Chemosh, Zeus, all the humans named them because they never would give their names. And the gods were very distant and wanting nothing to do with humanity. They didn't want to be involved with us. We were just slaves to them, that's all. That's how they were conceived. And so they gave uh, sacrifices simply to appease them. And uh, sacrifices in Leviticus, there's for a whole different reason. They're an invitation into a relationship with God. That's what they are. They're not about appeasing God. You couldn't appease God if you wanted to. His own son is the only one that could do that. And so, so Moses is working within this framework of who these gods are and what's going on, and he doesn't want to do it. So he's about to find out, we'll hear more about this later, that uh, when God sends those ten plagues, he's destroying the pantheon of gods of Egypt. He's showing the Israelites, before he introduces himself to them, he's showing them that he is God and they are not. He destroys the gods of Egypt. Nile River was a god, Right? And so Moses is wrestling through this, and he says, I don't really want to do this. He even asked Pharaoh, chapter 3, verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? In other words, God, are you crazy? (laughs) So here's God's answer. Verse 12, I will be with you. I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. See, he was at the base of, he was over by Sinai. And God said, you're coming right back to this place. Right here. That'll be a sign to you that I'm with you. Furthermore, all the way throughout here, God wants them to know that he is He is God. A dozen times, just in these short chapters, we have God saying, this is happening so that these people may know that I am Yahweh. I am their God. He wants to be known. So he goes on. Moses said to God, well, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what's your name? What do I say to them? He's talking to the living God. They had never had that happen. Well, now we know there weren't any gods, but they didn't know that. The gods never spoke. You never knew if they were going to be angry with you. And so now he's having a conversation. Well, what is your name? Isn't that a great question? What is your name? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's the English translation for the word Yahweh. That's a verb to be. I am. I am. That's my name. I am. I am everything that you need. I am. So when Jesus says seven times in John, I am, 
They knew exactly what he meant. That's why they tried to kill him. I am. In Exodus, God comes home to his people, what he desired all along. You see, creation is wonderful. God is interested in redeeming all of creation. All of it. We forget that. We think it's just pretty much about us. It's not. Psalm 50. All the animals are mine. I know them by name. The insects in the field are mine. Paul in Romans 7 and 8. All of creation is awaiting redemption. You see, God loves his creation. He hates evil. And there's a big difference. So God wants us. He wants to be with us. So he comes to his people. We see it in the burning bush. We see it in the plagues. We see it in Mount Sinai when he shakes the mountain because that's his temple. We see it in the building of the tabernacle. The whole Bible is communicating that God wants to be with us right here. In Revelation, the letters to the seven churches, where is Jesus? Standing right here with us. That's his desire. And that's Exodus. And that's where the story begins of God wants to be with us. So the rest of the Bible is about God coming home. So that when we get to eternity, we can look Jesus in the eyes. And we can hear those wonderful words, well done. To the faithful, you did it. Well done. No better words. Father, thank you for sending us your son. Thank you for well, the whole history of our history is coming to us. Lord, trying to get us to understand your love, your kindness, your gentleness, your goodness. I'm sorry, Lord, that we have turned it into a matter of judgment, even though you asked us not to do that. And I'm grateful, Lord, that you don't do that with us, that you are very kind and loving toward us. You move toward us. You never ask us to come to you. You come find us. You pursue us, Lord, every time we're in trouble. You hunt us down. Lord, I think of all the stories I've heard around the world from all my students over the years. Somehow you found them in the midst of their darkness. You found me in the midst of my darkness. And you lifted me up. And you brought me to you. Thank you for being that kind of God who pursues us relentlessly with gentleness and kindness and love. Thank you. And Lord, help us through this study. I pray that you'd smile as we work our way through it as frail humans, but help us to find out what that freedom looks like, breaking that enslavement that Satan caused. And bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.